Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. All right, we're live for another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. Esau McCauley. He's been on here before, but when he was on here before, he hadn't defended his dissertation yet. So uh, now he is Esau McCauley, PhD. <laughs> Welcome, Esau. Oh, thank you. Thank you for um, inviting me back. I don't know if you were going to let me back on after last time. <laughs> no, no, definitely. Uh, since last time, me and Esau have uh, become uh, friends and got a chance to hang out with some other um, aspiring uh, scholars, uh, Brandon Harris and Natasha, uh, when we were at the Missio Alliance conference. So we're all aspiring uh, uh, scholars in training, I guess. Uh, Esau is the one with the PhD. <laughs> 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 um, but for those who haven't seen our previous episode with you, Esau, uh, would you introduce yourself and give kind of a little bit of background about you and what you do now? Yeah, um, uh, my name is Esau McCauley. I teach at Northeastern Seminary in Rochester, New York. Um, my field is New Testament. My particular specialization is Paul and his letters. Um, like you just said, I recently finished my um, PhD. I'm going to be graduating in December from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, believe it or not. A black man lived in Scotland for three and a half years. N.T. Um, Wright was my supervisor, um, and I learned a lot from him, and that was great. Um, I also am an Anglican priest, um, and I write on issues of race and New Testament and kind of the Christian witness in the world. Awesome, awesome. So I decided to put you in the hot seat today and ask you about yes. a very controversial topic, um, something that is uh, very important for us to understand as doing apologetics in the African-American space, slavery in the Bible. And I know many people um, have a lot of questions about this. What does the Bible say about this? When people ask you this question, Esau, what, um, how do you kind of frame your answer? Um, well, first of all, I, I, I try to tell them that, like, um, the Bible is complicated. And I actually don't usually start off with, like, particular passages that deal with slavery. I actually try to give them a hermeneutic or a way of looking at the Bible as a whole to bring coherence to the very witnesses that we see. And interestingly enough, I actually like to start with what Jesus said about divorce. And that may seem like a strange place to start off talking about um, slavery, but I think it gives us the hermeneutical key to understanding kind of how we read the Bible, especially the Old Testament laws. In that passage, I don't know if you know about it, like the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, somebody come to Jesus and they ask him, Jesus, Moses said that we can divorce our wife for any reason. What do you think? And so what they really wanted to do is similar to what we do in the slavery issue. They wanted to get Jesus into the weeds to kind of fight about all of these different verses and kind of Catch, catch him in this kind of exegetical um, conundrum. But what Jesus does is he goes, well, hold on. In the beginning, it wasn't that way. And so rather than actually beginning with the passages in Deuteronomy, he actually goes back to creation and say, what was God's creational intent? And he says, God's creational intent was for man and woman to be united as one flesh. And every law that Moses has about divorce was actually because of Israel's hardness of heart. So in other words, he's saying it was because y'all filed that God had put in these certain laws to deal with human sinfulness. And so he then kind of makes a separation within the Old Testament between what God's creational intent was and some of the laws in the Old Testament that mitigate the consequences of human sin. And so then we have to ask ourselves, if we take a step back and look at the Bible as a whole, do we have any evidence that it was God's creational intent to enslave people, right? So when we read the Genesis creation story, does it seem like God's plan was we're going to have slaves? So God creates Adam and Eve. He says, you be fruitful and multiply, and we will enslave a portion of that population. Well, of course not. So that means that what slavery then is, or at least the discussions of the Bible, discussions of slavery in the Bible, 
are God's attempts to mitigate the impact of human sin, not his creational intent. And so the statement that the Bible supports slavery, to me, just misunderstands how Christians read the Bible. Just because there's a passage that talks about something, it doesn't mean that that's commended as the way that God expected society to function. And so for me, at least, the Genesis creation story, where every human being being in God's image and reflecting him in the world, means that God created us to be free beings, and our sinfulness created the types of societies in which slavery might be possible. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important and in a good way to frame it, because... uh, you have to, sometimes we look at the trees and miss the forest. Um, What are the trees in the scripture (laughs) and relates to this topic? What are the specific scriptures that are, would be problematic or would seem to affirm slavery in scripture? Well, um, I don't, I don't think affirm slavery. Or mention slavery would be a better word. We could talk about it. So, um, I think that it's um, theologically significant, at least to my mind, that um, God actually chose an enslaved people to be his chosen people. Mm -hmm. In the center of the Christian story and the Jewish story is God's liberating a people who are enslaved. So you can't talk about Christianity. You can't talk about Judaism without talking about liberation from slavery. And Mm -hmm. so these liberated people are the people who are given the laws that govern slavery in Israel. Mm-hmm. So the, the first one that you encounter, or at least the, one set of them, are the ones in like Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 15, God says to, um, to deal with, we'll start with Israel first and then deal with how like slaves from foreign nations were, were kind of handled. In Deuteronomy 15, God says no Hebrew, no Jewish person can actually be permanently enslaved. After seven years, they're to be released and actually given food and resources and animals so they can go live their free life. And the reason that God told them to liberate the slaves after seven years was because they had been slaves in Egypt. So their experience of slavery as a nation was supposed to prevent them from actually enslaving one another permanently. So as it relates to Israelite citizens, there was no, there was not supposed to be, shouldn't say that. The biblical ideal in this situation is there were to be no permanent um, slaves in Israel. It was just, it was illegal. After seven years, you will be released. Um, now, the problematic part, the portion that you talked about is the fact that you could have foreign slaves. Uh, and so the, the law that governed Israelite slaves, it says that Israel can only, an Israelite can only be enslaved for seven years. A foreigner could be enslaved permanently in Israel. Um, and that is kind of where you run into, you go, well, well, what's going on there? And I think part of it was, um, part of it was the fact that, once again, this isn't something that was commended. It was something that was allowed. And given this reality of all the other nations had permanent slaves, what happens when these slaves kind of came to Israel and they were enslaved? And what God did in Exodus then is actually make rules governing the conduct and how you treat those slaves. Um, one of them is actually Exodus 21, 20 to 26, where it says, how do, you treat the, how do you treat a slave? And it's actually a law that says, if you injure a slave in any way, it's in Deuteronomy 21, 20, uh, Exodus 21, 26, if you in, injure a slave in any way, even if you knock out his tooth, or, right, or if you give him a black eye, right, the compensation is the slave goes free. So in Israel, if, even if you were a permanent slave, if you were a foreigner or if you were not a foreigner, if you injured the slave in any real way, as simple as like if you punch him and the tooth falls out, the Bible says that slave goes free. The Bible also says in um, Exodus 21, 20, if you kill a slave, the punishment, at least this is how I interpret it, the punishment actually for the master is death. Um, it, it, there, there's a translation if people actually look this up in their Bible there's a translation issue there because it says that anytime um, a slave is killed and he dies, the master is to be punished but the language that is used for punished everywhere else in the Bible actually means to be killed so for example when it says that if anyone attacks um, Cain right, God's going to avenge him sevenfold God's going to, anyone who kills Cain, God's going to kill these people um, that's the word that is used to talk about the punishment of a master 
who killed some slaves. So although there was kind of permanent slavery allowed in Israel, even for foreigners, one, you couldn't abuse them where they went free. And two, if you killed the slave, the punishment was the death penalty. And that shows you that even a foreign slave was recognized just like an Israelite. Because the Bible says that if you kill an Israelite, you have to die because they were made in God's image. So it's recognizing the image bearingness of even foreign slaves. So yes, the Bible does have slavery in kind of the Old Testament, but it's not this, you can beat, rape, pillage, and do whatever you want to to a slave in the way that we had in American slavery. It's a much more, here's the reality of what's going on in the culture. Here are the ways that you can actually mitigate it. There's also actually a passage in Deuteronomy that says, if a foreign slave flees from his continent, so I mean, flees from his country, if he's enslaved in another country, and he flees into Egypt, not Egypt, Israel, you're not to return the slave. You're supposed to actually set that slave free and let him live with you. So even if you were like living somewhere else, if you're in Egypt, you managed to get yourself to Israel, it was supposed to be a safe haven for all the slaves of the world. Now, how they actually, now whether or not that actually happened is a different question, but it's stated pretty clearly in Deuteronomy 23, 15 to 16. If someone escapes, you let them live with you and you do not oppress them, you do not treat them as second-class citizens. And so I would say that the Bible in the Old Testament does attempt, I shouldn't say it's best, given the reality of human sin, it does attempt to mitigate some of the damage that is done by the existence of slavery in the culture. It doesn't, in my opinion, ever say things like, slavery is a great idea, here's how you should do it. It's like, given the reality of slavery, here are the things you could do to kind of mitigate how the slaves are treated. Mm-hmm. So is slavery in the Old Testament, as, as you already articulated, it's not the transatlantic slave trade slavery. Um, is it? Can it be considered more so as like an indentured servant, more so than in our minds? Sometimes we read slavery and, and just have, there's so many layers of slavery as African-Americans that when we see the word slave in the text, we immediately make that connection. Uh, if there is it, would you say it is like an indentured servant too, or would you say that would be different? Well, I'm sorry if I wasn't clear. The answer to the question is that like, in, if you were Jewish, if you were an Israelite, it was the nature of servitude because you could only be enslaved for six years at the most. So if you were Jewish, you were never a lifelong slave unless you chose to be. So if you were Jewish in theory, you could look forward to being free. If you were a foreigner, you could be enslaved for life and it was slavery. Now that doesn't mean that they were, they were treated the same way that Israelite slavery was and that it was based upon the color of your skin. So the idea that black people are inferior, therefore we need to enslave them to, make, to kind of bring them up to this moral standard. So this is kind of God's way of, of civilizing these foreign groups, right? That was not how slavery was looked at in the Old Testament. Um, it was more along the lines of the behaviors I said were strictly cur- curtailed. There is no law on any book in in, in any law book in American history, it says if you if you knock the tooth out of a slave, it goes free. Right? It's not there. But it's it's so to compare the two to me as far as the moral framework, and I don't want to talk about the moral framework as if slavery, all slavery wasn't difficult, but the moral framework for Israelite slavery were totally different. And the idea that like what we call transatlantic slave um, slavery based upon race, based upon the sense of black people are inferior to white people, to what was happening in Israel. Because like, I think we spoke about it maybe off air, but the majority of slaves in the ancient Near East were actually prisoners of war. And Israel was not supposed to engage in any offensive warfare, right? They had the promised land and that was it. So Israel was never supposed to go out and capture slaves and bring them back. That was never the category. They were supposed to get Israel, stay there, be a light to the nations. So I would not say that, um, I wouldn't try to lessen it and call it indentured servitude, but I would say that um, the way that God speaks about how we're ch- how the Israelites are supposed to treat the foreigners who came and were enslaved for them were different from how um, African-Americans are treated during the slave trade. Um, 
especially being removed from their countries and brought here. And it was a bit of a mess what we did or what America did. I didn't enslave anybody, neither did my ancestors. <laughs> um, I think it was interesting that uh, we talked about this a little bit off air, that uh, those who were slaves, as I'm talking about Israel, um, went on to have slaves. Yeah. Uh, I think that's an interesting, interesting point, even yeah. when we're talking about um, liberation and scripture and slavery. Yeah. I so, think that makes it, it's, 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 it's such a complex thought when you think about it. Yeah, so it, it, it does ask this question, right? So God, in his, in his providence, right, providence, he could have chosen any nation of the world, right? Or he could have had his people experience anything. He has them, he allows them to experience slavery. So the, at, the, at, at the center of their narrative is liberation from freedom. You would think that the Israelites then would refuse to enslave people, but they don't. And that shows you more about human sin than the nature of God, right? It shows you that no, even when we've been through something, we will then turn around and allow that to happen to someone else. And we see this all the time. A black person, I shouldn't say black people, everybody does, but black people, you grow up poor, you grow up in the hood, you kind of make it through, you get an education, you kind of get a degree, and then all of a sudden your politics change. You say, well, we just need to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, not recognizing all of the programs that got you to where you are, right? You would think that, okay, you came from this neighborhood, you went through all of this stuff, the natural inclination would be for you to be compassionate to all of the people who are in that same neighborhood, who went through the exact same thing. But some of us, we get to a certain place, and now we're too good, and we don't we feel like whoever's kind of still poor deserves it. And so I do think that Israel's practice of slavery is more uh, an indictment upon them. Because once again, it's not legislated in the sense of this is how you enslave people, right? He's saying, don't do this in your own communities. If you're going to do this, right, given the reality of all, all, all do not beat them, right? Do not kill them. You do not work them on the Sabbath. They, you know, you do, you do not, um, you allow them to participate in Passover and worship. You treat them with at least compassion. Can you at least pull that off? And the amazing thing about that, and we say, well, maybe God should have completely outlawed slavery instead of doing it that way. The amazing thing about that is Israel doesn't even do the, the bare minimum that he gives them, right? <laughs> so we say, well, God should have outlawed slavery. Even the compassionate version, they ultimately fail. Because when you get to the New Testament error, and I've done research about this, there is no evidence, there's no evidence that we can find that Israel in the time of Jesus was actually freeing Jewish slaves after seven years. They're not even following the law, mm-hmm. right? So even within their own people, the law that was established, seven years, so I can't find, I've been looking for this, maybe someone can find it. I've been looking in all of the secondary literature, is there evidence that Israel were actually setting people free after seven years? As a matter of fact, there's no evidence they did in the Old Testament. There's no evidence that Israel even practiced a jubilee. After 49 years, everything is free and everything is reset. Even this minimum that we consider not good enough, they fail to do. Why? Because we're sinful. And so I do think that what we see as it relates to slavery in in Israel, to me at least, isn't an indictment on God. It's actually an indictment on human nature. Because we still enslaving folks in 2017, right? <laughs> not Christian. Well, man, I don't know if they're Christian or not. But like the world still has slavery. And that speaks more to our heart than I think it does to kind of the God of the Bible and his creation intent. Mm-hmm. When we get to the New Testament and and let's see passages where Paul is talking about slavery, what do you think the intent was in his message? And how should we think about those passages? Um, well, there's a couple of them. The first one, the one that I like to actually begin with is the is first uh, Corinthians seven, where Paul is actually dealing with the different kind of um, statuses of people. Sorry, I'm, I'm going to like turn in my Bible just to make sure I get it right. So he's talking about actually living as you're called. So in Corinth, just to get an idea, as best as we can tell, about one third of Corinth is enslaved. So if you just say that the majority of the church were significant, so maybe one third of the church in Corinth, if it's proportionate to the population is enslaved. And so Paul is saying to the people who are now being converted in Corinth, he's telling them to don't worry about, uh, to stay in the status in which you're called. But what he says about slavery is particularly important. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, 6, 7, 
7.17, if you were circumcised, don't worry about um, being uncircumcised. If you're uncircumcised, don't be, worry about being circumcised. So, like, if you're a Jew or Gentile, don't worry about it. If you're Jewish, you don't have to, like, give up the law. If you are a Gentile, you don't have to be circumcised. But then he says, if you are a slave, right, well, you're a slave when you were called, don't be concerned about it. And a lot of people think that Paul is actually saying the same thing that he said about Jew and Gentile, but it's actually a different statement that he says. In those days, if you were a slave, it was possible for, and it varied between like if you're a high-class slave to a low-class slave, let's say you're a low-class slave and you're being sexually abused. And it was possible that you're asking yourself, I'm a Christian, I'm enslaved, and what does the stuff that the master does to me, does it make me immoral, right? So am I a bad Christian because this person is doing bad stuff to me? And Paul wasn't saying, if you are a slave, don't worry about being free. He's saying, if you are a slave and something happens to you, you're forced to do something you don't, you don't agree with, don't let that make you doubt your salvation. God loves you no matter what you've been through. And this is actually a very practical kind of thing for a Christian to go like, well, these bad things happen to me, does God still love me? But then he says to the person, if you can get free, get free. Which is different than what he says to the Jews and the Gentiles. He says, the Jews and the Gentiles, don't worry about it. If you're a Jew, stay a Jew in the sense of like, you don't have to get rid of your circumcision. If you're uncircumcised, don't worry about that. But if you are a slave, you can get free, get free. Because he knows that slavery puts certain hindrances on how you can serve the Lord, right? Because you can imagine all the ways which your life and your body aren't your own. So Paul does make it very clear in 1 Corinthians 7 that if a slave could get free, he, he or she should take advantage of it. But if they're stuck in a life of slavery, they shouldn't allow that to make them think that they're somehow morally compromised. And, and that is actually, so that's kind of what I would say, I begin to say that what Paul actually sees the potential moral problems with slavery, and he tells them, if you can get free, go. And he actually puts this into place in Philemon, right? So Philemon runs away from his, actually Unisimus runs away from his master, he runs to Paul, and Paul writes back and says to, to him, look, I could tell you, as the apostle, to free this person because you owe me your life. I can, I can make it a rule. But what I want you to do, I want you to do it of your own free will. And keep in mind that this is almost a gloriously passive-aggressive move by Paul because this is something that's read in the church, right? So the whole congregation is gathered at his house. They're reading a letter from Paul. Paul is saying, you need to let Unisimus go because you owe me your life, but it's not a rule. But I'm going to let you pray about it and discern it. <laughs> so what's going to happen next Sunday when you come to church? The pap, uh, Philemon is going to say, I've been seeking the Lord, <laughs> and God has led me to free Unisimus. And so I do think that Paul, um, when the opportunity arose, and when he had the opportunity to actually exploit his personal connections, to either maintain the status quo of slavery. He could have said, Unisimus, the slavery is the law of Rome. You are his slave. You need to go back and do what he says. But he doesn't do that. He actually uses his personal, his personal influence as an apostle, right, to say, let this person go. So I would say, like, those are the passages that, that I start with. But then there's kind of the other ones that deal with kind of how the, a, a Christian slave and a Christian master can deal with one another. I can talk about that or if there's something else you wanted to ask me between. Yeah, you could go ahead on those. Okay, so these are the ones that probably annoy Christians the most. <laughs> you know, when Paul says something like, slaves, submit to your masters. He's going like, well, why would Paul say that? Like, why doesn't he just like, I don't know, why does he just call yeah. for the revolution? Yeah. <laughs> or the government. Let's just burn this thing down, right? Um, well, the first thing I like to tell people at, at most, in any given city, right, there were maybe 100 Christians, right? So we're talking about in the church in Rome, in the church in Galatia, there, there are 50 to 100 Christians in a city of thousands and, or hundreds of thousands, right? And so when we hear Paul's um, words to slaves and masters, we hear it in the context of a totally Christian culture where Christianity is dominant and what we say becomes the law. Right. So we make it seem like Paul is saying to America that was all Christian, all y'all slaves submit to your Christian masters. Right. When we could, in theory, easily have changed the law, Christians could have changed the law. 
No, we were a, 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 a minority in the Roman Empire who had no political clout. I mean, we wouldn't have political clout for hundreds of years. And the amazing thing that happens is that when Christians do get political clout, slavery actually goes, goes away, right? But in this context, what does Paul actually do, right? You have an actual situation where you have Christian slaves and Christian masters. In Ephesians, he tells the um, Christian master not to even threaten the slave, not hit him, right? Not abuse him, do not threaten him. And so that has already kind of completely changed the entire culture of how slavery worked in the Greco-Roman world. Can you imagine saying, not only can you not beat the slave, you can't even threaten the slave. When you add into it, and this is where it may seem like a little bit um, of a rabbit trail, but it's not. When you add into when you add Christian sexual ethics into it, right? Because one of the main ways the slaves were exploited was for sexual advantage. And so the Christian sexual ethic that you only have sex with your wife, right, or your husband, had direct impact on how you treated your slaves. So there is no more assaulting, sexually assaulting the slaves. That's all gone, right? And so what he's then saying in this context, masters, you have a, you have a, you have a heavenly master who, to whom you have to give an account for every single thing that you do. So that then treats the slave as a fellow image bearer who deserves dignity and respect, did not to be sexually exploited, did not to be abused, did not to be threatened. And in response to Christian, the Christian slave, and this is the part that's uncomfortable, he's saying like, well, you can't just dip. It's just that's not how it works. Like you can't just leave. You have to treat the people who you're, you're master with respect. Now that may seem to be more emotionally unsatisfying for us. But what Paul is actually doing is he's dealing with the real ethical situation in his churches. And he's saying, given that it's similar to what they actually do in the Old Testament, given these realities of the day, how can I mitigate the fallenness of society? And he tries to basically remind slave and master that they both have a, um, a heavenly father who have been given account. And the thing that seems not seem radical to us was radical to them. Paul actually addresses the slaves as moral actors, right? He doesn't just say masters as if they're the only people who matter. He says slaves. He, he has enough respect for them to address them as moral agents and speak about who they are and what they can be. And so I do think that what Paul does in those submission passages is to try to change the framework um, within which kind of slavery is practiced to get rid of some of the worst abuses. Um, and I think that his, I don't say real opinion, but when he has the opportunity to speak on the opportunity for freedom, he does do it. And so I think that the kind of submission passages have to be read in conjunction with if you can get free passages. And it has to also be read within the wider context of Paul saying there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, we're all one in Christ. The equal status that we have before the Lord, right? will ultimately, kind of in the grand sweep of Christian history, help the church recognize that slavery in all of its forms is incompatible with the people of God. But kind of in, in the time, in between time, Paul is a bit of a pragmatist, for good or bad, and he tries to um, create, a, create a, a, a situation in which, while slavery exists, the people who are suffering under it aren't suffering unduly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that has to do with understanding contextualization when you're engaging people. Uh, I was talking to a friend that's um, African and I said, no, he's Nigerian. I'm sorry. I don't want to make, because Africa is not a country. It's a continent. Uh, I was sound ignorant saying that. Uh, But um, he's Nigerian. And he said, one of the issues um, when, you know, you would talk to someone and, share the gospel with them and they become a believer and they practice polygamy. Right. So there's a a gap between, okay, this is what God wants you, how God's designed, but there's also a gap. How do we navigate now that this person is the gospel and culturally, how are we going to navigate how we unwind this system? Because if we say that this, you need to just be married to one woman. Okay, 
This person is married to several women who are financially dependent on him. And if yep. I say, hey, you need to pick one of them, well, what does that do to the other women? So there has to be systems in place to talk to to fill in the gap. Yeah. And so I, I think that's important when we consider um we consider like these passages, like we want, yes, God's ideal, but in that gap, in that meantime, dealing with government, culture, how do we how do we deal with that gap? You know. I think I think that um, one of the things that, that we talked about, if you get God's creation intent in your head, like you said, you get what Paul is doing in, in Romans. But we, not just Romans, in the New Testament, and not just Paul, it's, it's Jesus himself. If you actually kind of think of the logic of the New Testament, right? Mm-hmm. That um, God's love for the world is without distinction. Mm-hmm. How then can the Christian justify making distinctions in people? So you have to talk about kind of the explicit, direct, attack on slavery in the New Testament and whether or not the New Testament itself articulates a theology that ultimately um, creates um, the end of slavery. Let me explain something. Like, the Christians in the Greco-Roman culture didn't create slavery. It was an existing phenomenon, right? The, like, we, we are responsible. I don't want to make overstate the case, but, like, Christianity as a whole, we're the abolitionist kind of strand of the world. Like, we, we were the ones who eventually came to the recognition recognition that slavery was incompatible with the gospel. And so we do have to make the distinction between does Christian theology actually speak about the human person in a way that makes slavery make sense? And so what I would like someone to say to me, like, explain to me how you can justify, you can say the cross is compatible with slavery, right? How can you actually say the Christian community with its emphasis on equality across race, class, ethnicity, and culture, how is that compatible with slavery? Versus I'm going to take a couple of these texts that are difficult. I'm not saying they're not difficult. They're difficult for us to hear. And I'm going to, I'm going to ice. I'm not going to put those in the context of where that like it's relationship to his day. And his day is radical. I'm going to put it against the standards that Christianity itself set. Right. So Christianity goes beyond the Bible or develops beyond. It, it takes the, um, the concepts and ideas of the Bible. It puts it in place. It abolishes slavery. And then we use that standard to judge kind of Christianity 2000 years ago. And I feel like you don't get that because you take away Christianity, you take away the ethical kind of the Imago day in Judeo-Christian culture, and you have what? A return to slavery, which is why we're finding it in these other cultures, right? The reason this modern slavery exists is because it's not about what a particular passage of the Bible said. It's about human greed and our desire to exploit. And it's only the gospel itself that actually works upon our hearts um, to actually make these things unthinkable, that then the Christians who are in power, hopefully, eventually, through the political process or other ways, eventually create a situation where people might be free. Um, so I think that we do have to, I don't, you have to be sympathetic to Paul because, and this might seem like really, it's actually still true, right? It's still the case that you might actually go to a portion of Africa where you might have a woman who is in a polygamous relationship with an abusive husband and she's a Christian and there's nothing you can do about that. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't necessarily pick up, pick up every woman and move her from, let's say Africa, from certain, from certain countries in Africa or wherever it is and then move them somewhere else. There's sometimes as Christians, even in the United States, where you're stuck in a difficult situation where the Christian has no power to change the laws or change the situation. And the only thing you can do is bear under that suffering through the, through the strength that God gives you. And Paul was in that situation where in a lot of cases, this is the reality that most slaves were dealing with. Because if you weren't the slave of a Christian master, you couldn't even put those ethics in place, right? You were just at the whim. And so I do think you have to understand how Paul's words fit within the complexities of Greco Roman culture. And it is indeed complex. Uh, I hope that listening to this, you are starting to wrestle with the realities of the complexities in the text as it relates to slavery in the Bible. If you tuned in thinking you were going to get an easy answer, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> this is something you really have to wrestle with and really think through scripture and, and read for yourself and study Christian history, study, make sure you have a 
good understanding of, of biblical hermeneutics uh, to, to even develop a framework in ways you look at these passages and, and interpreting uh, the Old Testament in light of the new uh, and thinking through these critically, because I think, you know, we might think, well, these, these things are kind of abstract, but you need these, these principles as a basic framework for as the church goes forward. Uh, we hear Jude 3 project um, hold the traditional view of marriage, but going forward where the laws have been changed, um, we're going to really have to think through critically, you know, when you have couples that come to faith in Christ that are same sex that have been married, uh, and they've been married maybe 10, 15 years and they have a family, what does that look like? Uh, when they come to faith in Christ. So all of this, you know, are you going to just tell them to split up, separate their families when they have financial ties? There's there's so many things that principles you have to take from this to be able to wrestle with your views and what it's going to look like practically. And that's just one example of it. Um, but if you think about gender changes, if you think about so many different things, these principles of how you develop your framework and understanding scripture and hermeneutics and how we practically engage these things are going to be crucial going forward um, and crucial for my ministry, G3 Project, crucial for uh, Esau's ministry and what he does, Christian ethics and how we just navigate on a practical level. Uh, we're going to need this framework. What, what do you think, Esau? I think that you're right. I think that um, we... Theology is eminently practical. And we have these theological abstractions, but at a certain point, those abstractions have to meet real life situations. And that doesn't mean, like you said, we compromise on the things that we think are true and important. Um, but the question is like when you give like when you get messy people, you have to have kind of complicated solutions that aren't as easy as these blanket statements that we make. And so I think that in the same way that we have, we have to have a nuanced discussion of like slavery in the Bible and, and understand it. And I think that we, we have to, as a church, wrestle with under submission to the scripture, wrestle with it, be honest about our history, be honest about the cultural setting of the Bible, but do so without using that as an excuse not to take it seriously. And so I think that what you talked about was a good model of it. Um, and I hope that in my own writing and my own research, I'm able to do it. I did want to say, like, I'm sorry, there's only one thing. And this doesn't necessarily focus what you said. There was no race-based slavery in the Bible, or at least in the Greco-Roman culture. And so that's at least, I don't know if I made that as clear when I talked about different groups and stuff. I want to make sure I get that clear. That when you, one of the things that made slavery different is that as you walked around Rome or Corinth, you couldn't necessarily tell who was a slave by the way that they dressed, by the ethnicity. And one of the things that separates, separated America is that you knew who the slaves were um, because they had been separated from their homeland and from their culture. And they, they were black versus everybody else or a significant portion of the other people. So anyways, I want to make sure I made that part clear. So you can at least one kind of clear separation between um, how, what Paul was dealing with and kind of what we were dealing with. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important that you that you mentioned that because there were so many. Well, we want to make sure you leave understanding that we affirm that slavery in America was evil. Yes. It was not God, not something yeah. that God ordained at all. Not no. something we believe scripture ordained. So we want to make sure that no. you do that. Yeah. And we, I, and, we also want you to wrestle with the complexities yeah. of what slavery looked like yeah. in scripture. Yeah. We're not saying at all that American yeah. slavery was ordained by God, transatlantic mm -hmm. slave trade. We are affirming that that was evil, that evil. was wicked, um, and that was completely wrong. And the, the Christians that even advocated for that, advocated for evil, and their advocating for that under scripture was heretical. So we want to affirm all those things and make sure you know that uh, when you when you turn this broadcast off. One more sure thing, Greco-Roman slavery was evil too. It was just a different type of evil. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying, so like even what Paul, slavery bad, Greco-Roman slavery worse, American slavery utterly evil. <laughs> so that's what you did the category and so what I'm saying is that even in Rome you it wasn't just like well this person is inferior therefore I can enslave him 
it was a much more complicated scenario. And in the and I think actually the social stratification of slavery in the Greco-Roman culture was there was a much higher height you get to as a slave, and the lows are still equally the low. So it was a complicated thing. I read this one article that said in the Greco-Roman culture, it mattered more less that you were a slave than who you were a slave to. And so if you were a slave to a wealthy person who had business affairs and they gave you freedom, you could you could sometimes have more status than a free person who was just kind of on the lower end of the totem pole. So all I was trying to say is that even though these slaves, and I have no, like the Bible, the Greco Roman culture isn't Christian. So I have no like dog in which slave, form of slavery was worse. I'm just speaking objectively. The American form of chattel slavery was a unique evil in the history of humanity, right? <laughs> it was like creatively depraved um, in that sense. And so that's the only thing I was trying to say. Um, what Paul was dealing with, not what we were dealing with. And what the Bible actually says, even in the passages that kind of mitigate human sin, it is way different than either one of the forms that we see either in Greek or Roman culture or definitely what happened in America. Because mm-hmm. in America, like, imagine imagine American slavery if one, if you knock a tooth out and a slave goes free. We would still have beef, right? We would still have beef. But the beef would be totally different than what happened to us. Mm-hmm. So anyways, I'll leave that on. I think it's important that we understand too this because when people think that scripture using being used to oppress slaves, we have to remember that certain verses were used. Yes. They didn't want us to read for a reason because if we read scripture, we would know that God doesn't want them to treat us the way they were being they were treating us. So mm-hmm. it's important to understand that that ignorance and them trying to impose ignorance on us had us had to do too with us reading the scripture. They didn't want us reading the whole Bible from cover to cover. So don't let that be the, the, the thing that turns you off from scripture because had slaves been able to read the Bible from cover to cover, they would have really had some, some ammo to challenge their slave masters with. If I was a slave, I'm going to have some real question with you about Genesis one. I'm going to have some real questions for you about the whole book of Exodus. <laughs> We're going to need to talk this through and see. I don't see how, I don't see how these things fit together. Right. And, you, and you see the, the Nat Turner story kind of kind of testifies to that. Yeah. When he was able to read the whole counsel of God, he was like, hey, there's a there's a they only wanted pieces to be read. And I think that's important for us to understand those yeah. Pieces. They wanted to use pieces yeah. of scripture and verses against us. And yeah. so if they're if they're not necessarily using the Bible, they're using portions of the Bible and they didn't yeah. want us to read the whole thing. So actually, you're rebelling against white slave masters by reading yeah. the whole Bible. If you want to be woke, wrong, we throw the Bible away. But it's like yeah. <laughs> if you want to be woke, read the Bible. Yeah, <laughs> just read the, and read the whole thing. And the funny thing about it is the people and I don't want to be like, obviously, there's an emotional reality to it. But the same people, it's, there, there's a strange confluence between the slave master and the person who currently opposes the Bible. And they want to point to the same passages. Right. The same woke black person who wants to like who wants to say that the Bible is evil is now agreeing with the slave master on their interpretation of scripture. Right. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying, but wait, wait about, what about the rest of the Christian tradition that says that the slave master was wrong? So now you say the slave master's right mm-hmm. on this exegesis against the entire stream of the black church tradition. Every black person who read the Bible <laughs> for, for 1900 years said, no, that was wrong. Mm-hmm. And so I just want us to say, not that I don't want to make it seem like, oh, there is no emotional or psychological or exegetical issues to wrestle with, but be mad about the right stuff. And be mad in a sophisticated way. And if you're going to criticize the Bible, make sure that your criticism is informed by real significant wrestling with the entire witness instead of protesting the same way that our slave masters did hundreds of years ago. Amen. And I think that's a good space to end it. Also, Esau, before we end, we always like to end with resources um, for people. Yes. What, what commentaries would you recommend? What books on this subject would you recommend that have been helpful for you? Because we're telling people to not only read their Bible, but read the history of the text so they can be informed and equipped to wrestle with these things themselves. Um, well, if you just look at the various commentaries on the text in question, um, I'm trying to think, I think 
It's called the New International Commentary on the Old Testament. I think there's a good commentary on either Exodus or or, um, or um, Deuteronomy. And just go to the relevant passages, Deuteronomy 15 and Exodus 20. You can look at those. Um, I think that there's a book called Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals. I think that's what the name of the book is. And it actually deals with the common like linking of those three. And I can't remember the guy's name. And it deals with like what the Bible says about women, what the Bible says about slavery, what the Bible says about human sexuality. I found that book helpful. Um, and it's really, this may seem silly, but it's really just people need to read hermeneutics. A lot of this stuff is just like understanding how the Bible works. Hermeneutics, would you recommend? Uh, uh, Michael Gorman's... Um, what is it called? Um, if you just do Michael Gorman, like introduction to exegesis or something like that. Um, and that was the one that I use, I use for our, our interp class. So his name is Michael Gorman. If you do something like interpreting the New Testament of biblical exegesis, um, he will kind of give you the tools, the step-by-step process of how to go about exegesis. And then I would also tell people to read kind of wider New Testament theologies. I'm going to sound like it's like, I'm, I'm just, Chilling for my boy, but like I would read some N.T. Wright and just get some actual theology in you. Um, or Richard Hayes, and I think he has a book called The More Vision of the New Testament that actually deals with kind of what the ethics of the New Testament actually say, um, rather than the individual text themselves. You see, what I mean, there are some books. Um, if you, I'll, I'll try to think about. It. Maybe I'll tweet them out later. Uh, that deal with kind of Paul and Paul and slavery in particular. But most of the stuff that I say, this came from learning about hermeneutics and taking each passage as they come and reading in context. Mm-hmm. What what I know you you do church history as well in New Testament because I want to one of the things that I think is is one of the things that we have to work on in apologetics and, and African American scholarship. What New Test also Dennis Edwards has a a, a commentary on Peter. So if you mm-hmm. want to hear African American voice. <laughs> On <laughs> First Peter, our, our friend Dennis Edwards uh, has a new commentary out. Uh, but it, when we go back and look at church history, African church fathers, what who has written uh, has recommend on topics of uh, hermeneutics? Um, so New Testament commentaries that you that you. Oh well, were you asking about history, Africa? So there, there you have to. What, what exactly were you looking for? I'm sorry. I'm looking for if to see if any of the New Testament. I mean, not not New Testament. The African uh, Church Fathers. What ha, do the what works would you recommend? Or have do they have any works on the topic okay. like Tom, Thomas Odin? Thomas Odin wrote wrote a book called like the African shape of early Christianity. I forget the exact name. His name is Thomas Odin. If yeah. You, well, yeah. How Christianity shaped the, yeah. the Christian rhyme. Yeah. So I would, I would start there, but the other thing that like people don't recognize, this might sound simple, but Egypt is a part of Africa. And if you look, if you just read any kind of church history, introductory, introductory book, they talk about the Alexandrian method. Right. There are different kind of hermeneutical methods that were prompt. that were prominent during the early church. Um, and Alexandria is just one of them. And everyone talks about it. But they pretend like, you know, they, they whitewash people, whitewash history. They act like this Africa was just white. Everybody looked like Elizabeth Taylor. But like <laughs> Egypt and the Alexandria method of exegesis was um, was uh, they're, they're people of color. Augustine was a person of color. Read Augustine. If you, you, want, to, you want to look at African resources, read Augustine. <laughs> or read it, and so like in his sexual ethics and his I don't know what he says about slavery I don't have a like that's just not at the top of my brain but Augustine's ethics are African ethics um it just did like we get our 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 church fathers get stolen from us like a lot of our history gets stolen from us or if you can read about anything about the Ethiopian Orthodox Church which has its own kind of history and moral reasoning and so there is we sometimes look for kind of this book about black people without recognizing that there's black people on the cover of the on the cover of our history that are kind of pushed down. I'm, anyone who's here who's been to seminary probably going, yeah, the Alexandrian method of exegesis. You can Google it and it'll come up and it'll tell you how we did it. Um, and so those were um, places that I would begin. But I would look at Thomas Odin. Um, I'm trying to think of who else was specifically. Um, 
the honest the honesty we don't I think there's like the African commentary Bible commentary but I haven't actually read it um, um, yeah. really closely yeah. the Africa study Bible uh, yeah. the Africa study Bible came out too that it's really helpful yeah um, um, I'm trying to think of um, the, the sad thing is there's a guy named Braxton and anyway there's, there's a couple of um, a guy named Braxton who's done some stuff in Paul and a guy named Abraham Smith, who's done a little stuff across at SMU. There's actually not a lot of Black New Testament scholars, um, as many as there should be. So there are some, but um, I just, they're just not at the top of my brain right now. I was not thinking in, like, um, bibliography. <laughs> no, I think that's helpful, because I think the, the Alexandrian, what, how did you say it? I don't want to say it wrong. Alexandrian method of exegesis. Alexandria method of exegesis. It's helpful because I I do want to, as we we highlight uh, scholars and books, you know some some pushback we got. Well, you learned your your information from the the white man, quote unquote. So I want to give people multiple multiple <laughs> multiple references uh, to help. Except for the fact, except for the fact, there were like four early centers of Christianity, and only one of them was in Europe. Mm. Yeah. Jerusalem, Alexandria, Syria, and Rome. So unless you're going to call Jerusalem, Alexandria, and Syria or Antioch, you're going to call all of those people white, then I don't know what people are talking about in the first 400 years of Christian history. It's not white. It's not. <laughs> it's just bad history. I'm, also, I'm sorry, you got to go. But just, if you're going to come at me, don't come at me, don't come at me with stuff you haven't even, even Googled yet. Like just Google, <laughs> Google the five early C's and see where they were and see who the Christians were. I mean, I could have swore Jesus grew up in Africa and I could have swore that was in Matthew, but I'm gonna leave that alone. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know the pushback we get, and that's why we had you do the episode on, on research to help. If you, yeah. if you haven't seen the episode, go back and check on uh, doing doing research that Esau did, um, I think was helpful. Uh, we thank you for coming on again. Esau, before we leave, how can people get in contact with you? Um, EsauMcCauley.com. Uh, that's my little raggly blog. Um, you, can read, you can read about some of the stuff I've written there. You can follow me on Twitter, Esau McCauley, um, at, tw- at Esau McCauley. Also, if for whatever reason you're black and you're interested in the Anglicanism, you can find us. We have a Facebook group called the Anglican Multi-Ethnic Network that I'm helping out with. So if you put in Anglican Multi-Ethnic, there are black Anglicans, there are Hispanic Anglicans, Latino Anglicans. Um, we kind of have a group there, so you can find us there. We're also on Twitter, too. So um, those are places you can find us. And um, come to my seminary. We're in Rochester. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Esau. Well, thank you again for uh, coming back on. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. As always, you can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com or you can subscribe on iTunes and Google Play by searching the Jude 3 Project. You can also get better equipped with our Bible engagement app by searching the App Store, Google Play, or Apple App Store by searching the Jude 3 Project, and that will help you better engage scripture on a daily basis. If you would like to donate to the Jude 3 Project, go to jude3project.com and hit the Donate tab. In addition, you can follow us on in, on social media by searching at Jude 3 Project on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and YouTube. Remember, here at the Jude 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.